All right, this morning, we're really blessed to have Pastor Lawson Purdue. I heard that Barry Bennett hit a home run. Really good. Isn't he a blessing? I tell you, I just appreciate so much all of the quality people. You know, one of the things that Jamie and I have seen in the last few years that has been really encouraging to us is the quality of people that God has brought to us without us having to pursue them. I mean, he's brought us people. Uh, David Hardesty, you know, worked 37 years in the corporate world and trained people for Sears, and now he's running our ministry. I mean, you couldn't hire somebody like that. I couldn't go out and search for him. And, and David has often said that, man, the corporate world might not kill, but they would maim to get some of the people that we have in our ministry. It's just powerful. Um, Larry Bozeman here used to administer three hospitals, Amen. and now he's traveling and ministering with us. Larry Hodge had thousands of people under him at Tinker Air Force Base. God just brings us these quality people, and he's bringing us these quality instructors, and it's a real testimony to me that this is a, something that's of God. It's not of us. We didn't pursue it. Barry came to us, didn't even let us know anything about what he had done, and just started answering emails. Did that for years until somebody recognized the giftings on his life. Man, I, I appreciate that humility and the fact that he wasn't self-promoting. And Lawson's another guy. He's just been so faithful. He's been with us forever. And I tell you, Lawson has a heart for this school. I mean, he loves Karis Bible College, and he uh, has a lot of Bible College students in his church. Those of you who may be coming to school, um, this is certainly one of the dominant places that our students go, and they just love you, and he, he's a blessing. He's a little fiery. He gets Praise to God. shouting every once in a while and gets a little excited. I do. But you know what? we got a lot to be excited about. And so anyway, this is Lawson Purdue, and he's the pastor of Karis Christian Center here in Colorado Springs. Praise the Lord. Well, it's great to, great to see everyone. Um, I watch Andrew sometime, and he's up here teaching. He'll be teaching on grace, and on the inside, I'm just jumping up and down. I'm like, Andrew, how can you stay so calm? It's so exciting what you're sharing. But I'm thrilled um, here, and I want to introduce my family. Part of my family are with me, and uh, my youngest son, actually. This is my wife, Barb. Come on. Come up here real quick. And come, boys. And this is my, uh, my wife, Barbara. We've been married 26 years, and we've been in the ministry most of that time. And she's actually teaching at CBC and taught 40 hours this week. And she's got a series on priorities in life and ministry. She has great insight into family and, uh, uh, and into relationships with kids. And then this is my oldest son, Aaron, that's been playing the flute with Jamie. And uh, he's one of the best young flute players in the world. And that's not just his dad speaking. That's the truth. He's, He's won some major competitions and been doing really well in some auditions. He's a master's uh, flute uh, performance student at Rice University. And it's been 100% scholarship. And then he's working. He has 20 uh, junior high students that are paying his room and board. He's teaching them lessons. And then this is my middle son, Andrew. And he's actually getting married Friday. I told him. So... You won't see me very much the next couple of days, but um, Andrew is—he's uh, been dating Bree, and they—they're getting married Friday night for five years. And Bree's been involved in our youth group and helping serve with the church and, and a lot of different areas. And we love him. Andrew just graduated; he was the outstanding uh, chemical engineering graduate from the Colorado School of Mines. Graduated in three years. And he's going, he's working for the National Renewable Energy Resource Association and getting his master's. He'll get his master's in one more year, and then, then we don't know what he'll do from there. And then this is Barb, and she's going to tell you something. <laughs> oh, I didn't tell you about my youngest son. My youngest son, Peter, is actually going to be a sophomore at uh, Princeton. He's studying economics, and he's playing football there. And he's actually over at the church today. And just keeping the wheels turning. And yesterday we had several problems, and they went to Peter, and he solved them. And so I just thank God. He's over there. He said, Dad, you, I said, do you want to come over here? He said, well, do you need me to be over here and make sure everything's going right? I said, that'll be fine. So he's taking my place while I'm gone over there. But it's going good. So.
Well, my husband is always kind enough to actually share the microphone with me, which that can be a dangerous thing to share a microphone, especially with your wife. But I'm going to attempt to um, put 20 years of ministry in about two minutes. I've um, spent over 20 years teaching on family, faith, and ministry. And I finally condensed it all in a CD series. <laughs> so um, what I've noticed is, you know, and especially where this is the second church we're building, and I know Andrew and Jamie are going into a building project. Anyone who's done any kind of building, whether it's your own home, you know that the building or structure is not as strong as the foundation. And so I've developed this series in mind with just teaching people to get a strong foundation, going back to the basics. And so what I teach on is priorities in life. And this is a pop quiz, but what should be the first priority in everyone's life in here today, all of us? What should be the number one priority? Who should be first? God. You get an A. Awesome. So, you know, I teach that God is first, our spouse is second, and our children are third. And again, I have to do this really fast. But in Deuteronomy, regarding um, God being first, in Deuteronomy 6, 5, it says, You shall love the Lord God with all your heart, with all your soul, with all your strength. We're made up of a spirit, soul, and body, and we're supposed to love God with everything. The second thing is our spouse is supposed to be second. And there's a whole lot to go in there, but here again I have a question. Whose idea was marriage? Who created marriage? Was Adam moping around the garden? Oh, I'm so lonely. I'm so unfulfilled. He was doing fine in Genesis 2.18. I mean, he was complete and fulfilled in his relationship with God. It was God's idea in Genesis 2.18. God said, you know, it's not good for man to be alone. I'm going to make someone comparable to him. So it was, it was God's idea. And not only that, everything was in place before Adam was even created. Everything he needed, not just to survive but thrive. Then God created the woman and brought Eve to Adam. He wasn't bar hopping and picking up every rock and picking up everything just came creeping along. Okay, boy, let that sink in. (laughs) God brought Eve to Adam. So marriage, you know, was God's idea. And every time God made something, he said it is good. So turn, if you're here with your spouse, turn to your spouse and say, this is good. good. You're good. (laughs) And the third priority is our, our children. And just very quickly, I teach that there's three things every parent needs to teach their children. And that's to love their word, love their family, and a practical trade. Again, in Deuteronomy 6, 6, it says, And these words which I command you today shall be in your heart. In verse 7, this is Deuteronomy 6, 7. You shall teach them diligently to your children, and you shall talk of them when you sit in your house, when you walk by the way, when you lie down, and when you rise up. So again, parents are to teach their children three things. Love the word. And I like how it even tells us how to do that. It's, it's lifestyle. It's not law. It's love. It's when you're walking, when you're sitting. I know the first three years we were married, we lived on a ranch with his grandfather. And it was so fun to hear his stories. Stories of riding horseback to the one room schoolroom and getting sprayed by a skunk on the way. But it wasn't even those stories that were rich in in our heritage, but just you could see the fruit in his life, a a strong heritage of his own love for God. He communicated his faith to us. Amen. So, and then teach your children to love their family. And I can tell my husband's looking at me. I got to go fast. So again, teach your children to love the word and love their family. And how do we do that? How do you love these people that you're in the same place with every day? It's good to pretend on Sunday in front of everybody. But what's going on Monday through Saturday? So I I feel like there's really a key here in Colossians 3.17 through 24. And in 17 it says, And whatever you do in word or deed... Do all in the name of the Lord Jesus, giving thanks to God the Father through him. Don't worry, I'm not going to quote everything. But then it goes on to say, wives submit. You know, husbands love and and how children are supposed to be. And sandwiched in all these relationships in the home, it ends it in 24. Say, knowing that from the Lord you will receive the reward of the inheritance, for you serve the Lord Christ. How do we teach our children to love their family? 
We serve our family as unto the Lord, and we're to do it heartedly and excitedly. Whether we're scrubbing the dishes or changing the diapers, we're really doing that service to the Lord. Amen? And then the third thing that we want to teach our children is a practical trade. In Proverbs 22, 6, it says, train up a child in the way he should go. And when he's old, he's not going to depart from it. If you study that out, it's talking about his individual gift or bent. You nurture that gift. Um, I'm going to use Aaron as an example because he's here and you've heard him play his flute. But when he was in fourth grade, he was issued an instrument by his band teacher, came home, put it together and played Amazing Grace without any music or never having a lesson. And we're like, wow, how did you do that? But even with all that, that gift had to be nurtured. For us as his parents, I believe it was our responsibility to see that that gift um, was nurtured and that he had the training he needed. And then, of course, even with that, there's a part that you have to teach your children about diligence, And so, anyway, this has been really fun. I love y'all. I'm so glad my husband allowed me to share, but that was 20 minutes and two minutes, or 20 years of ministry and two minutes. Seven minutes. Seven minutes. (laughs) I I forgot to tell you, we have a table, and it's out there primarily to tell you just a little bit about the church, but I have a CD that's free on it. It's called Declaring Freedom. Does somebody want a free CD? All right. She'll run up here and get it. That'll be great. And I also have some, I have some of the boys' CDs. They have one called Stand Up, and this is half hymns and half contemporary Christian. Run up here and grab it. And it's flute and piano praise, and it's awesome. And uh, they've actually had prophecies that people will be healed when they play and different things. And uh, praise God, they've got some different things out there, and we have a little bit of teaching out there. So bless you guys. I'm so excited to get a share. And... uh, I really, really have great respect for Andrew and Jamie and just thank them uh, for the privilege and opportunity of being here. I got uh, baptized in the Holy Spirit in a Bible study in Lamar, Colorado, where Andrew was teaching 32 years ago. And my life has never, ever been the same. It's just been transformed, praise God. And that was in 1978. In 1988, I graduated from Lester Sumrall's Bible School and started a church in Kit Carson. And then we moved to Colorado Springs in 2001 and started the church here. You need to hear me. They, what? Up. They said up a little bit. They're having a hard time hearing up here in the fourth row. So I'll get going. So don't worry. You'll hear me in a little bit. <laughs> but uh, I want to I wanna share today from Romans chapter 7. And I want to read Romans chapter 7, verse 15 to verse 20. And actually, I was just uh, teaching the other day in my church. I taught a brand new series I've never taught on, but I taught on the sanctification of the believer. And one of the Sundays when I taught on this, I was talking about how we are set apart in the Spirit. And if you're born again, that your spirit is 100% righteous and that you do uh, not have a sin nature. And there was a person visiting, and when I got done, I was out on the steps, and this guy came and grabbed me, and he said, You know what Romans 7 says? Romans 7 says this, and and you don't understand, but we have a sin nature. (laughs) And so I'm going to read the scriptures that that he was quoting to me, and then I'm going to show you why we don't have a sin nature. I'm going to show you what this is talking about, but... Uh, This is the experience of many believers, uh, what Romans chapter 7, and a lot of people won't teach on this because they don't understand what it's saying. But when you take it in context of what the book of Romans is saying as a whole, then it's just easy to understand. So I'm going to try to take something that some people feel like is complicated and make it simple. But we'll begin here in Romans chapter 7, uh, verse 15 to verse 20. He says, For that which I do I allow not. For what I would, that I do not. But what I hate, that I do. If I then do that I would not, I consent to the law that it is good. Now then, it is no more I that do it, but sin that dwells in me. For I know that in me, that is in my flesh, dwells no good thing. For to will is present with me, and how to perform that which is good, I find not. For the good that I would, I do not, but the evil which I would not, that I do. Now, if I do that I would not, it is no more I that do it, but sin that dwells in me. Now, as I said that, 
Many people have found this experience very common to their Christianity, but I don't believe that this should be common to true Christianity. And I believe that the reason that people are struggling and they want to do what's right, but they don't, and they don't want to do what's wrong, but they do it anyway, and they, is because they really don't understand who they are in Christ, and uh, religion has messed them up. And when Paul is writing this, I don't believe that he is writing this uh, from a perspective as uh, him as a new creation in Christ. I believe what Paul was talking about is this is who he was before he came to Christ, when he was under the law. The law creates a hope in you. The law is the shadow of the good things to come, and it creates some positive desire in you, but you can't do it because you don't have Christ living on the inside of you. So I believe what Paul's talking about is his experience before he got born again and before he came to know Christ. And he's explaining this. And if you put this in the overall context of the book of Romans, I believe it's easy to understand that. And then I believe if you begin to understand what he's saying, you'll see that not only do you need to be set free and delivered from the power of sin, and you have been set free and delivered from the power of sin, but you also need to die to the law. Just like sin will kill you. Paul talks about in Romans chapter 6, after you've got born again. We'll go back to the beginning of Romans and kind of go through what he's uh, leading up to. But he talks about why the believer should not sin. He says this in Romans chapter 6, verse 7. He says, he that is dead is free from sin. He says in verse uh, 2, God forbid, how shall we that are dead to sin live any longer therein? So the number one reason that the believer is not to live in sin is because we're dead to it. Do you know what? If I went to the graveyard in this city and I found the worst womanizer that was ever lived in this city and dug him up in the graveyard and I went and found the best looking prostitute that I could find. I might find one of these $5,000 an hour girls like the mayor of New York was messing around with or something and paid the bill and brought her up there. Did you know what? I can't get that guy to do a thing. And you know why I can't get him to do anything? Because he's dead. I can find the worst alcoholic that's ever lived in this city, and I can buy him a bottle of the best liquor that money can buy. And did you know what? I can pry his cold, dead hand out of the grave and wrap it around the bottle. And did you know what? He's not going to drink a drop. And the reason he's a dead man. So the number one reason that we don't sin is because we're dead to it. The second reason, it says in here, verse 7, we just read that, he that is dead is free from sin. We don't sin because we're free from sin. We've been delivered from it. We've been set free. Thank God, sin no longer has dominion over us. This is the third reason that we don't sin. He goes on and talks about this in verse 12 to verse 14. He says, let not sin therefore reign in your mortal body, in your physical body, that you should obey it in the lust thereof. Did you know what? If you're sinning as a believer, it's because you're letting sin reign. When I grew up in the church, it's like we had this teaching like the devil's over here and he's whispering in one ear and there's an angel over here and and he's whispering in the other ear. You're just trying to decide. And you know what? This is what a lot of this teaching does. They think you have a sin nature and you have a godly nature and you're just torn in between. But that's not the way it is. The fact is Jesus is living on the inside of you and do you know what? The devil's under your feet. And you have authority over him. And it says, you don't let sin reign. And if you're sinning, it's because you let it reign. You know what? I sin all I want to. I cuss all I want to. I just don't want to anymore. Praise God. See what I'm saying? I get drunk all I want to. I've never been drunk in my life. I chase all the women I want to. I've got one. My wife. (laughs) Praise God. You know what I'm saying? The ins- I've changed on the inside. And did you know what? I'm not going and doing crazy, stupid things. I'm capable of doing crazy, stupid things. But you know what? Sin is stupid. I don't sin, number one, because I'm dead to it. Number two, because I'm free from it. Number three, because I have authority over it. It says you. What's understood in that scripture, verse 12, is you let not sin reign. I was counseling somebody the other day, and they sent him over. He'd stolen something from the ministry and they said if we'd cancel him we wouldn't have to send him to the police and so I said well why did you do this and it was just beyond me that you know somebody would steal something from the ministry he said 
it was some type of behavior that he couldn't help himself. And I just blew up. I just said, you couldn't help yourself. I said, if I took my 357 and pulled the hammer back and put it up to your head and told you I was going to blow your brains out if you did it, you'd help yourself. What's understood there in that, in that context, it says, let not sin. You is understand. You are the subject. You are in charge of your life. You are in control of your life. You are in control of your actions. There's places that you don't have to go and things you don't have to do. And if you understand who you are, there's the places you're not going to go. Amen? You don't lend your mind. So he says, don't let sin reign. Don't let it have dominion in your mortal body that you should obey it in the lust thereof. Neither yield. Don't surrender. You yielded to something. Your members as instruments of unrighteousness that lead to sin, but yield yourselves unto God as those who are alive from the dead, and your members as instruments of righteousness to God. For sin, in verse 14, shall not have dominion over you, for you are not under the law, but you are under grace. The law actually made sin stronger. The Bible says in 1 Corinthians chapter 15, verse 56, that the law is the strength of sin. And did you know what? If you're struggling with sin, it's probably because you're religious. Either you're not born again or you're religious. And if you get born again and renew your mind, did you know what? You shouldn't be fighting and struggling with sin. Jesus defeated at the cross. You have authority over it. You're dead to it. Praise God. You're free from it. You have authority over it. The last reason that we don't sin is says here in verse 23 of Romans chapter 6. He says, for the wages of sin is death, but the gift of God is eternal life. Do you know what? Sin, any way you cut it, produces death. And do you, know what? I, do you know what? If you knew how good that God was and how much that God had for you and how much that God loved you, did you know what? You would be done serving the devil for good. People that are serving the devil don't understand how good God is and how much he has for them. Number two, if you knew how bad the devil was and what his real scheme was. Do you know what? He's a, he's a false advertiser. They show pictures of pretty women in beautiful Clydesdale horses and advertised Budweiser. They don't show you the guy laying out here under the bridge. They don't show you the family that has nothing in their cabinets but their dad's on a drunk. I've had that happen in my own, you know, not my immediate family, but with my cousins and stuff. I went to one of my uncle's house one day. They had five kids and there wasn't one stick of food in there. There wasn't a piece of rice in that house. And he, in the refrigerator is a six-pack of beer. That's just disgusting. They don't show you stuff like that. They don't show you how things have taken over people's life and control them. They, they show you something that's beautiful that God made and try to get you thinking that, you know, it's... I remember one time I was on the way to Mexico. I taught in a Bible school in Mexico for 12 years, one week a year, and... I was on the way to this Bible school, and there was this big barn where they sold liquor, and it said, El Diablo's Liquor. And the missionary that I was with said, that's truth in advertising. <laughs> you don't see that very often. You know, people don't usually tell you it's the devil's stuff. They, you know, the devil tries to make it look like something that it isn't. But you know what? Sin will kill you. It's deadly. There's good reason to stay out of sin. It's like the rich young ruler that came to Jesus. He said, I've kept all these things from my youth up. Now, we know that he hadn't kept any of them, really. But did you know what? Serving God's good for you. He was a rich, young ruler. So I don't sin because, you know what? I don't have a practice of sin. Because why? Because I'm dead to it. I'm free from it. I have authority over it. And sin will kill you any way you cut it. But in the same way, did you know what? That sin will kill you. Legalism is dangerous. Now, if we would go back to the beginning of the book of Romans, in Romans chapter 1, Paul addresses what the subject of the book of Romans is. And in verse 16, he says, I have to go there. He says, I'm not ashamed of the gospel of Christ, for it is the power of God to salvation to everyone who believes, to the Jew first and also to the Greek. Then he makes this statement in verse 17, For therein is the righteousness of God revealed from faith to faith, as it is written, the just shall live by faith. So he says, I'm not ashamed of the gospel. I'm not ashamed of the good message of Christ. I'm not ashamed of the good message of the grace of God, of what God has done for us in the person of Jesus when he died and rose again. 
He says, for the gospel is the power of God to salvation. The gospel empowers God to work salvation in the lives of those who believe it. What is salvation? It's wholeness, completeness, complete well-being, spirit, soul, and body. Your entire man. He says, I'm not ashamed of the good news, the too good to be true news of what Jesus did for us in his death and resurrection because it empowers God to work salvation. Wholeness, deliverance, completeness, well-being in every area of your life, in the lives of those who believe it. Did you know what? If you don't believe the gospel, it won't work for you. But if you'll believe the gospel, I am a believer. It's my nature to believe. It's easier to believe than not to believe. Amen? I don't have to have somebody explain to me all these different things. I'm a believer. If I can see it in the Word of God, I believe it. I know Andrew brings these people in like David Barton and they can explain all the scientific reasons and all the different things behind it and it's wonderful. My boys were watching on television the other day and they were getting a lot from it. It was great. They were teaching me when I came home. But did you know what? I am a believer and if the Bible says it, I believe it. That settles it. If the Bible says it, that settles it. I believe it. Then I can begin to receive the benefit of it. He says, I'm not ashamed of the gospel because the gospel is the power. It, it's the, it empowers God to work salvation in the lives of those who believe it. Amen? He says, for therein, in the gospel, the righteousness of God has been revealed. The gospel is the revelation of righteousness. If you have no revelation of righteousness, you have no revelation of the gospel. I went someplace the other day and I heard somebody singing and it was a Christian deal. And this person was just singing about how I'm drowning in my sin. And they were thinking that they were glorifying God. And I was just a little bit overwhelmed. We are not drowning in our sin. Jesus came to deliver us from the power of sin. Jesus paid the price for our sin. Amen? I am not a sinner. I am a saint. Paul even wrote the church of Corinth, which was doing all kinds of ungodly things. And he says to the saints which, which are at Corinth. And then he tells them, be a saint, be a saint, be a saint, be a saint. But he addresses them and calls them saints. The problem with a lot of the churches, they don't know who they are. They're all mixed up. It's like schizophrenic. You know what? People in the, in the crazy houses tell you that, that the Bible will make you crazy. Religion will make you crazy. The Bible won't make you crazy. Religion will make you crazy. But Paul writes this church that's living kind of, you know, not like they should. And he says, you need to, then he says, live like a saint. And then he goes, What? Just like a father with a son. What? Don't you know? Your body is the temple of the Holy Ghost. You got the Holy Ghost of God living in you. Don't you know who you are? See, and sometimes people are doing things. They come in. What? What? You got the Holy Ghost of God living on the inside of you. God has been made unto you. Wisdom, righteousness, sanctification, redemption. This is who you are. If you have no revelation of righteousness, you have no revelation of the gospel. So Paul says, I'm not ashamed of the gospel of Christ, for it's the power of God to salvation to everyone who believes it. I believe the gospel. To the Jew first and also to the Gentile. For in the gospel, the righteousness of God has been revealed from faith, the faith of the Jew, to faith, the faith of the Gentile. Right? The right and so if you have no understanding of righteousness, you have no revelation of righteousness, you have no revelation of the gospel. There are a lot of people that are coming to church that have no revelation of the gospel. That have no revelation of who they are and what they have in Christ. If you know me very much and hear me very much, you'll know that this is my pet peeve. But you know what? When I got an understanding of who I was and what I had in Christ, it transformed my life. My life was transformed as much when I was baptized in the Holy Spirit and got an understanding of who I was in Christ as when I got born again. Man, it changed from night to day. And it's because I began to realize who I was. Now, Paul goes on after that in Romans chapter 1, and he begins to talk about the Gentile need for righteousness. And he makes this statement in verse uh, 22. He says professing themselves to be wise, they became fools. The basic problem in the Gentile world are these three things, philosophy. They profess themselves to be wise, but they become fools. 
The Bible talks about this actually in Colossians, that don't leave the, the foundation of the gospel for the philosophies of men, so on and so forth. So philosophy, and he says, and they change the glory of the incorruptible God into the image like a corruptible beast of birds and four-footed beasts and, and creeping things. Idolatry, he says in verse 24, wherefore God gave them up to uncleanliness through the lust of their own hearts to dishonor their own bodies between themselves. So the basic problem in the Gentile world is philosophy, idolatry, and lust. You can take it from there and say all kinds of ungodliness, right? So basically in Romans chapter 1 from verse 18 to the end of the chapter, Paul is saying the Gentile world needs Jesus Christ. The Gentile world needs righteousness. In Romans chapter 2, then he goes on and talks about the Jewish need for righteousness. And he says this in verse 1, he makes this statement, Therefore you are inexcusable, O man, whoever you are that judge... For wherein you judge another, you condemn yourself, for you that judge do the same thing. What he's saying is religious makes you critical of other people. It makes you look down your old long nose and point your old bony finger out there at people. And, you know, I grew up in a church like this, and I know exactly what it's like. My dad couldn't stand it. I remember my dad, we'd sit like right where Karen Bean is, about the third row back in the church. My dad sit right on that end, and the preacher would be up there preaching. My dad wore, he had a problem with his eyesight, so he wore dark glasses and he had a big old black cowboy hat. And sometimes he'd just stand up right after the preacher started preaching. He'd just put on his hat and put on his glasses, and he'd walk right out the middle of the church. And he'd tell mom, come pick me up the sheriff's office. I can get a better sermon over there than this. I mean, he's probably true most of the time. I mean, we were in a church where the well of the Holy Ghost froze up. It was so cold in that place, you could ice skate down the aisles. I mean, it was sad. It was tragic what was happening in that church. But you know what? They didn't have much revelation of the gospel. But uh, anyway, how did I get off of that? But religion. And so he's talking to religious people here, and he says, you judge another, but yet you do the same thing. Do you know what? You might think that you keep the law, but it's just like this rich young ruler that came to Jesus. Jesus explained to him how he hadn't even kept the first commandment, let alone over 620 or 30 that went with it. He said, you haven't even kept the first one. And Paul goes on, and he just that's what he's talking about here in Romans chapter 2. And he goes on and makes this statement in verse 23, which really is just the heart of what he's saying in Romans chapter 2, how the uh, Jews need God. Or need righteousness. He said, you that make your boast in the law through breaking the law, you dishonor God. And there are a lot of people, they've been raised in the church. They've been trained in the church. And did you know what? But they, they're still trying to do it in their own strength and their own ability. And they're not. Do you know what? If you offend the law in one point, you're guilty of it all. And so in Romans chapter 1, he says the Gentiles need Christ and, or need righteousness. In Romans chapter 2, he says the Jews that are caught up in religion and they're trying to keep the law. They, through breaking the law, dishonor God. They need righteousness. Then he says in Romans chapter 3, in verse 10, there is none righteous, no, not one. And he actually quotes from Isaiah and he talks about how the whole world is caught up in sin. And he makes this statement. He says, uh, the, he says, in verse 19, now therefore, we know whatever the law says, it says to those who are under the law that every mouth might be stopped. The law showed that we were a sinner and that we needed a Savior and that we have no more excuse, right? That we're all, that we're all lost, that we're all dying. He says, therefore, by the deeds of the law shall no flesh be justified in his sight, by the, for by the law is the knowledge of sin. He goes on and says in Romans chapter 3, Verse 21, but now in this time the righteousness of God apart from the law, without the law, is made known, manifested, revealed, being witnessed by the law and the prophets. The, law, the, the prophets prophesied of the grace that was to come in Christ. That's what First Peter tells us. The angels desire to look into what we have. And the law pointed, it was, it was to point men to Jesus. So it was to show them their sin. So when Jesus came, they'd cry out and say, Jesus, save me. 
And so as you look at this, he says in verse 22, even the righteousness of God, which is by the faith of Jesus Christ unto all and upon all them that believe. For there's no difference. There's no difference between the Jew and the Gentile. Did you know what? All have sinned and come short of the glory of God. It didn't matter whether you sinned in the law and you broke the law and you were a transgressor or you sinned as a Gentile and you were just in iniquity and rebellion to God. Do you know what? We were all sinners. Everybody, we were born in sin, we worked in sin. He talks about this later. In Romans chapter 5, he talks about how uh, through one man, Adam, sin and death came upon all men. And then he talks about through Jesus. He made uh, righteousness available to all men through grace. And so he just explains this and he goes on and says, being justified freely in verse 24 by his grace through the redemption that is in Christ Jesus who God sent, in verse 25, to be a propitiation, a payment, a covering through faith in his blood to declare his righteousness for the remission of sins that are passed through the forbearance of God. God sent Jesus to what? To declare his righteousness. Jesus is the righteousness of God. And when you believe on Jesus, you are made the righteousness of God in Christ. In your spirit, you are either 100% righteous or you are 100% a sinner, but you are not a combination. Most people think I'm 50% righteous and 50% a sinner, or I'm 90% righteous and 10% a sinner, or I'm 99% righteous and 1% a sinner. In your spirit, you are either the righteousness of God in Christ, 100% righteous, as righteous as Jesus is righteousness. You've been given the righteousness of God, or you are a sinner on your way to hell, and there is no, it's either or. If you die today, you're either going to go straight to heaven or you're going to go straight to Hades. And if you go to heaven, it's not because of all the good deeds that you did. It's because you believed on Jesus and you were the righteousness of God. And if you go to hell, it's because you just didn't believe on Jesus. Amen? But God sent Jesus to declare his righteousness. Through faith in Christ, and when you believe on Jesus, you are made the righteousness of God in Christ. He says, for the remission of sins that are past. Praise God, not only are my sins forgiven, my sins are remitted. There's no more remembrance of them. God's not keeping account of them. He goes on and tells us about that in Romans chapter 4, but he makes this one more statement in verse 23. He says, to declare at this time, I say, his righteousness, that he might be just and the justifier of him who believes in Jesus. The only way that God could be fair was put everything in Jesus. And whoever believes on Jesus is made 100% righteous, and whoever doesn't believe on Jesus is not righteous. You are either wholly righteous in your spirit or you are wholly unrighteous. You're either saved or you're lost. You're either on your way to heaven or you're on your way to hell. Praise God. And the way that you'd receive salvation was simply by grace. Now, if we look at chapter 4, he talks about this, grace and faith. And he, he gives us a couple examples. He said, uh, talking about Abraham in Romans chapter 4, verse 3, he says, What does the scripture uh, say? Abraham believed God and it was counted unto him for righteousness. Here's how you receive the righteousness of God. God sent Jesus and Jesus was the righteousness of God. He did no sin and he died on the cross and took our sin. So that now when we put our faith in him, his righteousness is given to us. And we're made righteous. We're made completely righteous. And the way that we receive this righteousness is we believe. Faith is the way that we receive righteousness. And he uses Abraham as an example. I love the examples that he used. Tommy quoted this other scripture up here today uh, on David. And blessed is the man to whom the Lord will not impute sin. He uses Abraham. Did you know what? They aren't the best spectacles that he could pull out of the closet to use for examples of faith and grace. He uses Abraham. This guy... Did you know what? As an example of faith. He's so chicken that when a foreign king looks at his 90-year-old wife, he says, she's my sister. <laughs> Do you know what? Abraham, he wasn't the best shining example of faith. He's chicken. That's why you know it wasn't his faith. It was the faith of God. But he believed God and God made him righteous. 
And when he believed God, it says God counted. There's three words that are used, counted and imputed. Uh, for righteousness, reckoned righteousness, they all come from the Greek word logizomai. It's an accounting term. It means to put on the account. Did you know what? The right, when you believed on Jesus, the righteousness of God was imputed to you. It was accounted to you. It was placed on your account. You've got so much righteousness on your account, you can't send it away. It'd be like having $100 billion and trying to go to Sears and Roebuck and spend it all up. Put in your debit account. You, you know what? It'd be hard to spend all that $100 billion up at Sears and Roebuck. You'd take a lot of them $20 shirts. Amen. You've got the righteousness of God. You've got the righteousness of Jesus put on your account. When God looks at you, He sees you as completely righteous. So Abraham is this example of faith. And did you know what? It was ultimately the faith that God gave him. But you look a little bit farther. Then he uses, uh, he uses David as an example of grace. And he says, David talked about this. And he said, blessed is the man to, the, to whom the Lord will not impute sin. How do you get saved? It's by grace through faith. And do you know what? God is not imputing sin. We got a golf tournament. I'm going to be in the golf tournament this week. And, you know, I called Larry Hodge the other day and I said, Larry, did you know I'd like to be one of the sponsors? But he said, well, you're so late, you're going to have to come play golf to be a sponsor. And I said, well, okay, I guess I want to be a sponsor. And, and so, so he, said, he said, I'll put you in if you'll come play golf. Well, you know what? I've never played golf. But Barbara, Barbara said, you know what? Barbara is a person of faith. She said, well, I want to be in it, too, if you are. She said, how hard can it be to hit one of those little, little white balls around? She's a person of faith. I, I'm going to do that. And so Larry said, I'll tell you what I do. I'm going to put you and Barbara on Andrew's team. And so Barbara said, well, Andrew is such a person of grace that he'll understand. <laughs> Ah, glory to God. I'm really only telling a joke. We're not going to be at the golf tournament. <laughs> but I thought I'd kid Andrew a little bit. He's always kidding me. He loves the kid. Praise God. But anyway, we are saved by grace through faith. And did you know what? Salvation is not about you doing something to help yourself. Salvation is about a radical intervention in an impossible situation. And the example that Paul used was Abraham and Sarah were trying to have a kid and they weren't getting along very good. He was 99 and she was 90 and they never had one yet. But God came and intervened and gave them a word and they believed his word. And do you know what? God worked a miracle and they had Isaac. God said, it's not going to be Ishmael. His name's going to be Isaac. I'm going to have the last laugh. He's still laughing. Hallelujah. Amen. Amen. Praise God. So it was by grace through faith. It's not any of our own doing. It's not any of our own performance. Salvation is not about you helping yourself. It's not a self-help program. Salvation is a radical intervention in an impossible situation. My mother prayed for me when I was 14 years old and she said, God, could you do something with this kid? I'm really having a hard time. And did you know what? She took me to a Bible study and I got filled with the Holy Ghost and I got changed so much the other way that they worried about me because all I did was take care of cows and go to church. <laughs> worried about me. Told me you can't go to church anymore. You can't take the car. You're using too much gas going to church and going to youth group and going to this meeting and that meeting. And so it came next Wednesday night and I wanted to go to church. And so I told my dad, I said, Dad, can I use the car tonight? And he said, well, where are you going? I said, well, I'm going on a date. He said, well, you can use the car. They were so excited. He's going on a date. He might be going. So after he told me he could use the car, he said, who are you going with? I said, Jesus, I'm going to church. He said, oh, go on and go to church. And we ended that stupid rule. Some of you make stupid rules and try to keep your kids out of church. You ought to get them there. I might help them. Praise God. Amen. I was totally changed by the Holy Ghost. I went from one side to the other side when I got filled with the Holy Ghost. 
But he goes on and talks about what happened when we were saved in Romans chapter 5. And what he says in Romans chapter 5 is that when we went from the reign of sin and death and we came into the reign of grace and righteousness. I'm no longer under this, the dominion, under the slavery, under the reign of death. I am under the reign of grace and it is through the righteousness of God. Just like sin reigned in, by death, now the grace of God is reigning in my life through righteousness. And I am a king's kid. I've been brought into a position of authority. This is what happened. I got born again. I was made righteous. Now, how do we live this victorious life out? Well, number one, you don't want to sin. We talked about that in Romans chapter 6. And the reason you don't want to sin is because sin will kill you. Right? You're, what, dead to it, free from it, have authority over it, and sin produces death. But you know what? Just like sin will kill you, Romans chapter 7, and I wish I had more time, but I don't. But Romans chapter 7, if you look at the very first part of this chapter and keep this in context of what's being said, in Romans chapter 7, he makes this statement. He says, uh, what? Now, brethren, he says, uh, that know the law, how the law has dominion or authority over a man as long as he lives. Verse 1, for the woman who has a husband is bound by the law to her husband as long as he lives. But if the husband be dead, she is loose from the law of her husband. So if... While her husband lives, she be married to another man. She will be called an adulteress, but her husband be dead. She is free from the law so that no adulteress, though she be married to another man. In other words, if, I, if Barbara married me and hoped and I was one of these really domineering, legalistic, mean people and I was always demanding something of her and she could never do it. And you know what? She bought a big insurance policy on me and I was coming home from work one night and got ran over by a train. She... She wouldn't be weeping. She'd be rejoicing. She told me a while back. She said, you're working so hard, you're going to die early. And she said, I'm going to go spend all your money and I'm just going to have a big vacation. <laughs> but anyway, did you know what? If I was that type of husband. Before I got an understanding of grace, I used to be pretty demanding. And do you know what? Barbara says, I've totally changed since I got a revelation of grace. And she said, it's totally positive. She said, it's helped our family. She said, you're a lot better to live with. I've still got a long ways to go. <laughs> but you know what? That's what it's talking about. But if, if I died, but you know what? If, if she were to just, if she went and got married to somebody else while I was still alive, that would, the law is against that. And this is what it's saying. Did you know what? It's comparing the law to this legalistic, domineering husband that demands something of somebody that they can never do. And then what happened is Jesus came and we died in Christ, with Christ, to the law. So now that the law, the law is still alive and well, but when you got born again, you're not under the law anymore. You've come into a new dominion. And what uh, Paul is saying in Romans chapter 7 is just like in Romans chapter 6, you need to die to sin. You need to die to the legalism and die to religion and die to the law because just like sin is deadly, religion will kill you. I hate religion. Amen? And the law will kill you. And he uses this example. And so he says in verse 4, we are dead to the law by the body of Christ. Number one, we shouldn't be under the law because we're dead to it. He says in verse 6, now we're delivered from the law. Number two, you shouldn't be under the law because you're free from it. You're delivered from it. Right? The third thing he says in verse 10, and the commandment which was ordained to be life, I found to be death. The number three reason you shouldn't be religious and you shouldn't be legalistic and you shouldn't be under the law is because it'll produce death in you. And the number four reason, he says this in verse 14, for we know that the law is spiritual, but I am carnal, sold under sin. Did you know what? Religion is carnal. Because religion is focused on the flesh. It's focused on the outward man. It's not focused on the inward man. You need to take the focus off your outward man and put your focus on the inward man. And Paul comes to the end of this chapter and he explains this challenge that religious people, this is not the normal Christian experience. If your normal experience is you want to do what's right, but you don't do it, you don't want to do what's wrong, but you do it anyway, it's because religion has messed with you. It's because you're under legalism and you need to get set free. And did you know what? We've become dead to the law by the body of Christ that we should serve another. We, we need to live and love Jesus Christ and let Jesus live his life through us. And he comes to this conclusion, I thank God through Jesus Christ my Lord. And he goes right on into Romans chapter 8. He just doesn't even take a breath. 
And he says, there is therefore now no condemnation. There is no judgment against those who are in Christ Jesus. Either you are in Christ Jesus or you are out of Christ Jesus. Either you have been born again and you are the righteousness of God and Jesus has taken all your judgment and punishment and you've put a demand on that or you're not. There is no condemnation to those who are in Christ Jesus who walk not after the flesh, who aren't trying to get it through their own performance, through their own works, through their own ability, through, through, try, through their own religion, right? But after the Spirit. He says, for there is a new law. The law of the Spirit of life in Christ Jesus has made me free from the law of sin and death. For what the law could not do in that it was weak through the flesh, God condemn sin in the flesh, send his own son in the likeness of sinful flesh, that the righteousness of God might be fulfilled in us. Amen. Amen. Everybody say, I am the righteousness of God in Christ. I am 100% righteous. I am as righteous as Jesus is righteous. God is pleased with me. Faith pleases God, and I believe Jesus. Therefore, God is pleased with me. Hallelujah. We love you. Have a great day. I'm done. Praise God. Isn't that good? Lawson is a blessing. We appreciate you, brother. Well, what a deal. You know, one of the great things about our Bible college is that we have such a variety of ministers. Many people come to the school because they've heard me on TV and they come for me and they aren't sure about all these other instructors. And then they get to listening and man, it's powerful. Barry Bennett, Lawson, all of Wendell. Man, people love Wendell. I tell them, just wait till you get to know him. Everybody loves Wendell. He is such a blessing. And, um, you know, the good thing is we're all different. We have different personalities, but it's the same truth. And we, we present it in different ways, but it's the same truth. I tell you what, you get bombarded. And if you don't get it through me or Wendell or Barry, or you'll get it through Lawson. You'll get it through Arthur. Arthur's going to be ministering on Friday from South Africa. He's now part of our Bible school. I'll tell you, powerful minister. And it's just really, really wonderful to see so many different people with the same life-giving truth, and it changes people's lives. Amen? So we are through this morning. Let me just mention that we're having our tours of our Woodland Park facility called the Sanctuary. They start at 1.30. It's about a 30-minute drive from here, so you'll need to leave here by 1 o'clock. Or it goes from 1.30 to 4. You can go at any time, and we're going to have a hayride up there, so make sure that you dress appropriately. There is no food up there, so you need to eat before you go. And we're going to be quit at 4 o'clock so our staff will be able to get back here by then. So God bless you. Have a great afternoon. We'll see you up in